Thank you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians is where I'd like to direct your attention. We're going to read from chapter 2. I'm going to read 12 verses. We are familiar with this passage. I've been reading it a lot um, in the last few weeks. Today, I think, is the last time that we're going to read these 12 verses. We're going to finish looking at this portion of the uh, letter that Paul wrote to Thessalonica uh, this morning. 2 Thessalonians 2. While you're turning there, I'll mention two things, two words of thanks. Uh, I want to express, first of all, some of you noticed our brand new Gaga pit out back and the new posts that are there, the parking posts. Uh, they are uh, part of our improvement projects for the outside, and we're getting ready for the new uh, piece of playground equipment that's coming. Uh, that uh, work was done uh, over the last couple of weeks. Um, Joel Hess and John Krause and Josh Bittner and Jeff Bittner and most especially Tyler Swanson have been involved in that project. When the concrete cures, we're going to put a nice little rubber pad on top of it to keep our little Gaga players safe. Uh, but that will come soon. It looks great, and we really appreciate their work. Uh, speaking of our little Gaga players, uh, they, our children's choir this morning, I saw them as they were leaving the foyer. Uh, they were leaving on a field trip today. Bill and Francis Hershey live a block and a half away or so, just a little bit, and our children's choir went over to sing for them this morning during the service, which is great. It's a wonderful idea. I'm not sure whose idea it was, but I fully endorse it. My name is Joel Devinney, and I fully endorse. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. Let's read God's Word, okay? That would be very helpful this morning. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction." He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you I told you these things? And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Uh, when we started walking through this chapter a few weeks ago, I told you that there was no connection between what we learn here about the Antichrist and the elections in the United States. I promised you then that it was just a coincidence Today, though, some of you are going to uh, be inclined to disbelief. The reason being, we're going to talk today about a leader who lies. And uh, we have a long time, we, we know that politicians have an unsteady relationship with the truth. Uh, but it used to be, though, when you were caught, blatantly it mattered. It made a difference 
Uh, there were consequences, but this is the year, isn't it, that the word fact check has become uh, mo- the, one of the most important terms in our election. Now, uh, those of you who are Democrats in the room think I'm talking about Republicans, and those of you who are Republicans hope I'm talking about Democrats. As they say in Texas, I'm talking about all y'all. Uh, actually, I- I'm talking about none y'all this morning. Uh, This chapter is about the day of the Lord. It's about the day of the Lord and and the triumphant return of the Lord Jesus and how his triumphant return is going to be preceded by the reign and preeminence of a man of lawlessness. The Bible calls him the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition, the one doomed to destruction, the Antichrist. And the question that this text sets before us is this. How... How in the world, considering the disastrous consequences, how can it be that so many people are going to follow the Antichrist? Revelation tells us that he uh, is a terrible beast who's going to have worldwide influence. How can that be? How, how is it that he's going to be able to walk into the temple of God, proclaim himself God, and that millions, if not billions of people are going to follow him and worship him? How, how can that possibly be? I know there's, there's famous people in the world. There's people that when they walk around, they're, they're, they're followed by uh, photographers like a cloud of gnats on a warm summer evening. I, I know there's people like that in the world. And they give interviews on television and they talk about important things and they have lots of fame. But uh, worship, what, what, if, if one of those people stood up and said, you know what, it's good that you're taking pictures of me because I'm God, take a nice shot, Right? Would people actually worship them? This reminds me, this text actually reminds me of a question that I hear occasionally. You might remember it from history class. How did Adolf Hitler convince the German people to follow him in his maniacal plans? How did he do that? Uh, How did he take a nation that had produced Beethoven and Bach and Martin Luther and Immanuel Kant and Hegel, and how did he turn them toward this rampant anti-Semitism? How did he do that? I remember in high school during our world history class watching a movie called The Wave. Do you, ever, do you remember that movie? It was made in 1981. Uh, it won an Emmy that year for Outstanding Children's Program. It, it came to fame because it was an ABC after-school special. There's, I'm dating myself. Does ABC have after-school specials anymore? I don't know. There was this movie. It was called The Wave, and The Wave was based on a true event, a true uh, thing that happened with a high school teacher named Ron Jones in the Palo Alto, California school system. Ron Jones was a young history teacher. He was 25 years old. He was charismatic. He was well-liked by the, the students, and he was teaching them world history, and he wanted to give his students an illustration of what it might be like in uh, Germany uh, during the rise of Adolf Hitler. This is what he did. It was supposed to be an experiment that lasted one day. He, he came into his class, very sternly st- stood in front of them, and soberly said to them, Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, I have done a lot of research recently and I have come to the conclusion that if we want to be a successful school, if you want to be a successful student, we need to find an eternity. And he wrote on the board, strength through discipline. Students were interested. He gave this wonderful speech about their success as students. They were interested in it. It's Palo Alto, California. These young men and women wanted to go to college. They wanted to have uh, successful careers. So he's talking about discipline and how important discipline is. Nobody's going to argue with that. 
He told them that in order to uh, discipline themselves, they need to have better posture. So he told them, made them sit up straight and put their arms behind them like this while they were sitting in their desk in class. Uh, the next day, uh, he carried this on throughout the whole day, and the students seemed to actually respond to his surprise when he walked in the next day to class. His students were all sitting there like this. And he thought, well, they bought it yesterday. Let's see what's going to happen today. He made this up as he was going along. Ladies and gentlemen, I have now an additional point that you need to know about what it means to be a successful person. We need strength through community. Wrote that on the board. Discipline, then strength through community. And he talked about what it meant to be a part of a community. Um, then he gave this movement of strength a name. They called it the third wave. He distributed membership cards and logos, and there was a special third-wave salute that they would give to each other. More and more students got involved. They would start skipping class in order to come and listen to his lectures in his class. Uh, there were fights that broke out on campus over students who wouldn't participate in it. Uh, and uh, after five days, the school was turned into such chaos that the pressure became so great on him that he hosted an assembly where he, st- he stood before them and he said, this has just been an experiment. I, 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 I'm just trying to illustrate something that can actually happen to people. Everybody, everybody got caught up in this, including Ron Jones. He had bodyguards following him around the school. How did that happen? Even if you go, you can find interviews with students who were there who participated in this in 1981, and they remember, and if, when they talk about it, they're still a little bit dazed as to what happened and, and how this, this fervor developed in their campus. What we find here in this passage is not just the work of a charismatic leader, although the man of lawlessness will be very charismatic. What we see here actually is the supernatural at work. Verse 9 tells us, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works verse 11 the supernatural for this reason god sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie these two actors i think in this these two verses here set the trajectory for how we're going to walk through the text remember the theme here how is it that even considering these terrible consequences they're going to come come is the lawless one going to come to such preeminence? How is he going to have such power? We're going to talk first this morning about what Satan does, and then we're going to talk secondly about how God responds. It's basically what we're going to do in this text. One of the questions, though, that I want to keep in the forefront of our minds all the way through is, here's what Satan does, here's how God responds. What did Paul expect the Thessalonians to do in response to this information? Or more specifically, What does God expect from you knowing this chapter, reading this information? We're going to answer that question as we go through these verses too. Uh, Let's begin here. What Satan does. What does Satan do? Simply put, Satan lies. He lies. Uh, We learned a few weeks ago from verse 4 that the career of the man of lawlessness is going to culminate in entering the temple and demanding to be worshipped as God. That's the highest he reaches. And verse 9 tells us that there's three elements in how he's going to bring to himself this uh, authority. Uh, Verse 9 tells us he's going to use all sorts of displays of power. Your translation might say powers or just uh, miracles. Displays of power, signs, and wonders. Those three things. Wonders, my text says, that serve the lie. Your translation might say false, false signs 
and wonders. The word false in the text refers to all three of these miraculous things. Um, And he uses the word false in this text not because the miracles or the signs or the wonders themselves will be counterfeit, but because they're going to, I believe they'll be genuine, genuinely miraculous supernatural events, but they're false in that they serve the lie that the man of lawlessness is a God who is to be worshipped. The, 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 the miracles, the signs, the wonders serve the lie. They serve to convince people to worship this uh, man of lawlessness. This passage, I think, is teaching us that the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, and maybe his minions, too, are going to be able to perform satanically empowered miracles, and they're going to convince a lot of people. Now, we pause for a minute, and we think about this and what this means here. This is another way in which the man of lawlessness is an Antichrist. Remember the phrase, Antichrist doesn't just mean opposed to Christ, but Antichrist also means uh, a substitute Christ in the place of Christ. The word coming in verse 9 is also used to describe Jesus. It's used to describe the man of lawlessness and Jesus. But, you know, these three words here, miracles, signs, and wonders, are frequently applied to the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. They serve to highlight the fact that the Lord Jesus is from God. Look, I, I wrote down some of the passages on your note sheet. Listen to how Peter describes Jesus in Acts 2.22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to God, by God to you, how? By miracles, wonders, and signs. There's those three words. Which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12 that this is how you know someone is a genuine apostle. I persevered, he says, in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. Or as one more passage, Hebrews 2. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how should we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. All three of these are evidence that the Lord Jesus is from God, and now Satan uses them to convince people that the man of lawlessness is worthy of their worship. He really is, he really is an anti-Christ. Now, this passage also helps us understand that not every miracle is a sign of the blessing and presence of God. I, wanna, I would like to say this kindly. Um, Sometimes followers of Jesus in their, their desire to see God at work or their enthusiasm to see God at work and do amazing things, they tend to affirm the supernatural and by doing so, they're sometimes incredibly naive. There's no shortage of preachers or teachers that you can find today who claim to have the ability to perform miracles. I think that most of them are counterfeits. But even if they're real, even if they're actually doing those miracles, those signs cannot necessarily be trusted. You have to listen to the words that they're saying. Satan can perform wonders and signs and miracles. Paul wrote here that that these signs and wonders and miracles uh, serve the lie. Verse 10 elaborates on the deception, doesn't it? It says, 
all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. Who's going to believe them? Uh, Those who are perishing. Not followers of Jesus. Not, if you're a follower of Jesus, you. Satan lies. That's what he does. He deceives. Now, I want to think about this passage for just a moment. We're going to, this is the macro level. This is a worldwide movement. And I want to think for just a moment here about your life in the here and now. And I want to ask you a question. Think about this. Are you easily deceived? Or maybe I should ask it this way. How easily are you deceived? This is how our adversary, Satan, operates on a grand and global scale here in 2 Thessalonians 2 and on a very small scale in the temptations that you face every day. This is how temptation works. Temptation rides into the arena on the back of a lie. So are you easily deceived? Jesus said Satan is a liar from the beginning. It's how he (coughs) first convinced Eve to eat the fruit in the garden. God had said, in the day you eat this, you will surely die. Satan said, you will not die. Liar. This is Satan's favorite weapon. I know we talked about this recently. Uh, In front of every temptation that Satan offers, there is a promise that cannot be kept, a benefit that cannot be delivered. He's a master at stagecraft. He builds sets that are elaborate and beautiful and two-dimensional. How easily are you deceived? I made a list of some of the lies that you might be inclined to believe. Um, I made this list because they're lies that I might be inclined to believe. Here's some of them. No one will ever find out. It won't really hurt anybody. I deserve it. Those are the lies we tell each other in our secret sins when we're indulging behind the scenes. Here's another set, maybe. He or she deserves it. It's the lie that you tell that provokes vengeance. Because of what he did to me, because of what she did to me, he deserves it. There's a lie of of compromise. Lies that lead to compromises. There is no other way. There's no other way for me to be happy except in this relationship. Compromise. There's no other way for me to be successful except by cutting these corners. There's no other way for me to achieve these things. Satan makes promises that he cannot fulfill. That's how temptation works. If you can see the lie, you can escape the trap. Now, verse 10 offers us some more help here. As the text continues, it says, They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. This is the only place in the New Testament that the phrase love the truth is, is uh, together here. It's the only place this phrase is found. It's worth thinking about a lot. We're going to talk about it for just a, a few minutes here. Uh, by truth, when, he, when Paul says they refuse to love the truth, he's not talking truth uh, about any fact, anything that's true. Cardinals are red birds. The freezing point of water is 32 degrees Fahrenheit. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the specific truth of the gospel, the good news that we celebrate in our church. Paul summarized it in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's the truth that is supposed to be loved. The Bible identifies all of us as sinners. We've fallen short of God's perfection, and there's a cost to be borne for that. You can think about it in economic terms. If I hit your car with my car, 
I owe you the money that is necessary to repair your vehicle. That's why I have car insurance. I have damaged your property and recompense should be made. Sin is violence done to the world that God has made. And there is a recompense. There is a penalty for it. Or you can think about sin when you think about my garage. <laughs> Yesterday, my, my kids and I, we cleaned the garage. It's about a project that we do once a year or so. Uh, we clear everything out of it. We sweep it out. We sweep out the garage. All the leaves, all the grass, all the broken toys, all the cobwebs, everything goes out of the garage and the chaos gets swept away. My sin introduces chaos into God's world and the Bible tells me that someday God is going to come and sweep his world clean. Now Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sin. He became estranged from his father so that we uh, might become welcome with him as a son in God's family. It's It's a change of status. It's a change of status that takes place by faith by trusting in Jesus as our Savior, our substitute. Verse 12 uses that phrase. It says, they have not believed. Well, our call is to believe the truth. Now, according to verse 10, this believing has more to do with just knowing the facts. It it uses the word love, love the truth, delighting in the truth, welcoming the truth, thinking it's the best news ever. I'm not a Cubs fan, I'm not an Indians fan, but I follow the news. So uh, I uh, learn uh, who's winning the games and who's winning the series. Uh, I, I receive the news, it never makes me cry, and it never makes me rejoice, because I really don't care. Um, but Paul's expectation is that you would love this truth, that you would receive it, it's It's great. It's the news. It's how you feel when you found out that your daughter-in-law is expecting. It's the news. It's how you feel when your boss tells you that you're going to get a raise. It's it's how you respond to uh, good news that the reservations, that you can make reservations for your dream vacation. The spot's opened up just for you and you can go. Oh, Oh, good news. Love the truth. It's actually a contrast in verse 12. Uh, at the end it says, they have delighted in wickedness. It's the same thing. Not loving the truth is the same thing as delighting in wickedness. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, this may be ground zero for you in your battle with temptation. Because I see this phrase, love the truth, and I, I don't think that it's the default setting for my heart. Uh, there's a television out in the foyer, and uh, it uh, pulls announcements, and it, uh, it's in slideshow mode. I come in on Sunday mornings, and I turn it on, and the default setting for slideshow mode is to show those slides for five seconds. I think they should be on there for longer, so I have to change it to ten seconds. The default mode for the slideshow is not to repeat continuously, but we want it to repeat continuously. I have to reset it every day with my remote, uh, every Sunday morning with the remote so that it shows over and over again for 10 seconds. It's not the default setting. Is the default set? You should think about this. What is the default setting of your heart? Is it loving the truth? You know a little bit like what, what this is like. Um, 
it's, it's almost Thanksgiving. Uh, it'll be time for us to, be, uh, to express our gratitude and our singing and, 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 and our thinking. And, and I guarantee sometime between now and Thanksgiving, this may be your lucky day, uh, you're going to feel guilty because you're not grateful enough. Somebody, something will say, happen. You'll see a Facebook meme. You'll, you'll, uh, you'll uh, sing a song. Someone will say, you will feel guilty because you're not grateful enough. And the default set, setting of your heart is not gratitude. You don't love the truth like you ought to either. So what do you do about that? Some people find this devastatingly discouraging. Um, they tell themselves if they don't love the truth enough that they must not actually believe the truth. Or they argue, that they, they say, um, you, you should only do for God what you feel like doing. That's what authenticity is. It's, not, it's hypocrisy if you don't love it. So you should only do what you feel like doing. The problem with that is, is, with that is if you never do, feel, uh, never do what you uh, don't feel like doing, you'll never do anything worthwhile. If I only did what I felt like doing, I'd still be at home on my couch eating popcorn right now. Hmm. So here is a frequent subject of my praying. It's how I pray often. That God would redirect my mind and heart to love the truth that I believe. I pray this a lot. I pray this a lot on the way to the hospital. I like to go visit people in the hospital. I really find great joy in it. Uh, People are never in the hospital when it's convenient for me to go see them. It's not very convenient for them to be there either, but it's not convenient for me to go and see them. So I pray on my way to the hospital that God would help me to love the truth that I want to celebrate with them when I go visit them in the hospital. Maybe you should pray this way too when you're on your way home. Um, you're tired after a day of work and, and you're going to see your husband or your wife. They're waiting there for you and the kids and you don't feel like playing with them or helping out or encouraging them. Maybe that's the moment that your commute should be the time that you pray about what you love at that moment because the gospel calls you to love your neighbor who lives closer than your wife and kids, husband and your kids. If you love the truth, it will diminish the power of the lies. The elders this this year are memorizing Psalm 139. I have been helped incredibly in this loving the truth by verse 17. It says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. God's thoughts are valuable. They're to be loved. They're to be cherished. They're worth remembering. And things that are not God's thoughts should be rejected as not valuable and should not be followed. How is it that the man of lawlessness can draw the whole world to himself because Satan lies? He lies. Don't be duped. Don't be duped by lies. Even if the whole world believes him, don't follow. Don't be duped. So that's what Satan does. Now, second here, uh, we consider how God responds. How God responds. Simply put, I'll say it this way, God sends confusion. God sends confusion. Verse 11 says, For this reason God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. Does this sentence bother you? God sends confusion. Does it trouble you? Hmm. Um, I want to mention just uh, two temptations that you might have when you read passages like this. Um, They're temptations 
that it, by warning you about them, they it might help you when you read the rest of the Bible. Some of you, when you read this, you're tempted uh, to be upset about the wrong thing in this passage. You're upset. God sends a delusion that bother you. I tell you, you should really be bothered by the fact that someone's going to pretend to be God and take his glory to himself. That should really bother you. Actually, it should bother you too. You should be more bothered by the fact that there are people who are perishing because they don't love the truth. That should bother you. Probably should bother you more than whatever you think verse 11 means. There's that temptation. Then there's another temptation when you read this passage and passages like this is that you are tempted to forget everything that the rest of the Bible says about God's kindness, his love, his grace and mercy. You're tempted to forget all of those things and focus just on this mean thing that God is doing. How can he be so cruel to confuse people? Are there other passages of the Bible that tempt you to think that way? You read this one verse and it threatens to undo everything that you know from everywhere else in the Bible about his kindness. Well, what's going on here? What's happening here, I think, is that God is making their deception worse. Notice here the order in the text. Regardless of what you believe about election or predestination, look at this verse. What happens first? What happens first is the people refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Verse 10, for this reason, on the basis of that, verse 11, God sends them a powerful delusion. God is making their choice worse. Um, Why does he do that? Why does he do that? Well, on the one hand, we can read from the New Testament that um, um, not everybody believes signs and miracles and wonders. And God, by this delusion, is just making sure that they do. Why? Uh, Jesus did signs and miracles and wonders. It didn't make everybody believe. Not everybody believed. But everybody is going to follow the man of lawlessness. Why? Not just because of the signs and wonders and miracles, but because God is going to send confusion to them. There's that. But I think this verse also gives us some insight into how God governs the universe. What's his moral ordering of the universe? We see here one of the ways that God judges the world. How does God judge? When you take a step away from God, when you start walking away from God, his judgment sometimes comes with the wind at your back. His judgment sometimes comes with a moving escalator under your feet. You're walking away, God... That's his judgment, uh, uh, pushing you further down the path that you have chosen. Well, there's examples of this in the Bible. I want you to turn back with me from 2 Thessalonians to Romans. I want you to go back just a couple books to the book of Romans. We're going to look at chapter 1. We look at Romans chapter 1 a lot. I know that. It's so important, though, in how our minds are shaped to think about the world that God made. So Romans chapter 1, I want you to turn back just a few pages. I can't be more than 30 or 40 in your Bible. Um, It's 60 (laughs) in mine, thin pages. So uh, Romans chapter 1 is where I want to direct your attention. And um, here we go. We're going to see God putting the wind at the back of those who reject him. All right, this is a passage about the root of what happens, our sin. Verse 21, here it is, Romans 1.21. For although they, speaking very generically of humanity, knew God, 
They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So what's the sin? What's the walking away from God? Well, it continues, verse 22. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like immortal human beings, being and birds and animals and reptiles. So what's the stepping away from God? rejecting his glory, refusing to thank him, refusing to honor him, refusing to glorify him as God. That is the stepping away that's happening. What's the wind at their back? Verse 24, sexual perversion. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Um, Well... Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things, particularly, he's talking here in this text, sexually served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. And then look at verse 27 of Romans 1. It says, in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. The key phrase there here is the due penalty for their error. What's the error? The error is turning from God, exchanging God for created things, refusing to honor Him and glorify Him. So what happens? God gave them over to sexual perversion and it itself is a penalty for that error. That is their form, a form of judgment. What at times feels like, this is how this is advertised, what's described in Romans 1 is liberation, right? Or uh, self-expression, or I'm breaking the bounds that have bound me unnaturally, and I'm going to be who I am. And Romans chapter 1 says, that is penalty. It's judgment from God. Now this chapter is speaking here on a very broad, very macro level, um, If you experience same-sex attraction or homosexuality, your personal experience of this might be very different to you. In fact, I doubt that your personal experience, that your thought process goes uh, strictly along Romans 1. I'm going to reject God and do what I want. I I doubt that that is very much your experience, your personal experience. Remember Paul speaking macro level about the whole culture and the whole world. Personally... Your experience may be very different from that, that you're, well, you're, you're confused or you're, you're um, thinking about what comes naturally or easily to you. We believe that Bible teaches that sexual intimacy is to be enjoyed between a husband and wife in the context of covenant marriage. But we also believe Uh, that every single human being experiences in some way sexual brokenness, deviation from that norm, from that that gift that God has given. Uh, We are a congregation. We have experience in our congregation with pornography and adultery and homosexuality and all kinds of brokenness. Paul calls us, 1 Thessalonians 4, to sexual purity. Uh, we're to learn how to control our bodies in holiness and honor. That, that, but that sexual brokenness that all of us experience is a sign of our alienation from God. It's a consequence of our alienation 
from God. And Paul writes about this when he says, God gave them over. Sounds like 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. God sent a delusion. It's a sign of God's judgment that, that is coming upon human beings who have turned from him. There's something very similar that happens in 1 Kings uh, 22. We won't turn to it, but Ahab the king has turned from God and we have this unusual view into heaven. And God says, who will go and deceive King Ahab and put him into a place where he'll be defeated militarily? And one of the angels said, I will go, I'll send a lying prophet and the prophet will encourage King Ahab to, to go into battle this way. It's part of God's judgment that he is... He is People have walked away from God and he's putting the wind at their back, a moving escalator under their feet. I think that's what's happening in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And what we see actually in this passage is, this is another evidence in this passage of God's mastery over the evil plans of Satan. Satan thinks he's going to be fooling the whole world, that he's going to be getting his way, and God is just using his deception as one of his own tools for uh, judgment, for holiness, for justice. God is in complete control in this passage, in absolute and complete control. Follow me again how 2 Thessalonians 2 works. It starts, the people are concerned about the day of the Lord. They think it's already come. They're unsettled and alarmed. And Paul says, don't be unsettled and alarmed. And here's the reason you shouldn't be. The rebellion hasn't occurred and the man of laws isn't here. You shouldn't be worried at all. But in the midst of all that, underneath and supporting it all are these affirmations. Here, why, here's why else you shouldn't be unsettled and alarmed. Because Jesus is in absolute control even of the man of lawlessness. He's being held back by God's power, the man of lawlessness is. When Jesus comes, he's going to defeat him with a, a blow of his mouth. And, and even when the lie comes that this man of lawlessness should be worshipped, God's in control of that. God has mastery over that. Satan, for all his works, the man of lawlessness, for all he does and all the horrible things that he does, is just, again, a tool in the hands of God. That's why you shouldn't be unsettled and alarmed. We're not afraid. We're not afraid when persecution comes in force. We're not afraid if we face a severe trial. We know that even in this, Jesus is going to make it right. I'm going to finish this morning by creating two great homiletical sins. Here they are. Number one, I'm going to repeat an illustration that I've used before recently. In fact, I think I do this every year. Secondly, I'm going to commit an error that to some of you will be even more egregious I'm going to talk to you about Christmas. It's not even Halloween. I'm going to talk about Christmas. I, I want to talk to you about one of my favorite Christmas carols. You know the story because I think I tell this every year. It's a, story, it's a song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. I love that song. It doesn't mention angels or shepherds or sheep or wise men or even the infant Christ. It was uh, written based on a poem that Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote during the Civil War. Uh, the 1860s were very hard on this man. Uh, in 1861, his wife Frances died. She was, um, it seems like she was trying to seal a letter with some wax and the candle uh, fell on her dress. Her, her dress caught on fire and she died miserably from the burn wounds. Uh, then the Civil War started and uh, his son Charles didn't talk to him about it, just left and sent him a letter and said, hey dad, I've joined the Union Army. I'll keep in touch. Kind of a grievous thing. He probably didn't ask, Probably didn't ask his father because he knew his father what his father would say. 
Um, in November, he left in March 1863. In November, Longfellow got a letter telling him that his son Charles had been wounded uh, at the Battle of New Hope in Virginia. Um, he survived. His father was just really crushed by this injury. And on Christmas Day, a month later, after getting that news, he woke up and he heard the church bells ringing. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. If you read the original, there's a lot of talk in there about the Civil War. You can really place it in its context. He talks about cannons firing. And and there's this line, he turns, he starts to think about, it's Christmas Day, it's supposed to be peace on earth. He, He says, And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and it mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. It's a change that happens in this song. I don't know what happened, how it came about. The Psalms do this all the time. The Psalms, don't they? They start in despair and then all of a sudden there's a a switch in them. You can notice it when you read the Psalms. There's a switch in this song, this poem that Longfellow wrote. He said, um, Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill toward men. We'll probably sing that song a few times in December, I would imagine. Remember the deep roots from which it comes. Remember that. You'll face a time in your life when hate seems incredibly strong. God's not dead. He's not asleep. In all ways, over the man of lawlessness, over Satan, and over evil itself, he is the undisputed master. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and we thank you. We, we need not be easily unsettled or alarmed because our confidence is in you. God, we pray that you would make it so that we would fear and revere you more than we would fear uh, persecutors, that we would um, be alarmed by um, men and women who grab power for evil purposes. Lord, uh, we thank you for reminding the Thessalonians of your mastery over our adversaries. Send us forth with joy and confidence in it. Make us men and women who love the truth so that we can see and recognize our enemy's lies so that we don't fall for his schemes. We pray these things together with thanksgiving, saying, Amen.